Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventuresin.net. I'm Sean Claver, your host, and with me today is your favorite, well, maybe half favorite, if we got two favorites, Caleb Wells from, from <laughs> New Orleans. Hey, hey, how are you, Sean? Hey, I think everybody knows you're from New Orleans by now. Yes, yes, right. All the, the alligators and floods and hurricanes and humidity, but right, we also have Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest. So you take the, the good with the bad. And I can, I'll take New Orleans. <laughs> I'm very happy here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I could deal with that much humidity up here. It, it, it's fall now. The leaves are falling. The colors are turning, all that kind of stuff. Days mm -hmm. are much shorter. So, you know, I would, I would like the longer days in the winter that you have. Yeah. But yeah, that humidity, I just, I couldn't do with it. I guess I'm too I, used um, to up here where it's usually like, yeah. 15, right. 20% humidity. I, I'll take the humidity over six to 10 feet of snow any day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I own a snowblower. You probably don't. No, I <laughs> have no need. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, let's welcome to our show, our guest, Dennis Duman. Welcome, Dennis. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's an honor to be here. And you were talking about the weather, and uh, I'm actually uh, in the Netherlands, close to the sea, The Hague, political mm -hmm. capital. And I think we have kind of the same weather as you, Sean. It's 12 degrees Celsius. I think that's like, uh, I don't know, 55 or something, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Sometimes I visited the US, and it's, it's autumn here. The rain is falling. It's completely dark at eight o'clock in the evening, and there's not much sun anymore. It's right. it's a big contrast between a week ago because we still have great weather a week ago, but I think now it's done. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, yep. yeah, we're We've getting down gone. into the uh, forty degrees, which will be what mm -hmm. uh, just a few degrees Celsius at night, and then in the day, we're still in the seventies. So we got a, a big temperature range. It's nice during the day, but just cold nights. Exactly the same here. <laughs> you can actually sit outside with a shirt during the afternoon, but the mornings are always cold for some reason. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. All right, Dennis, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, what you do, how you got in development, and then how you got involved in .NET? Yeah, I will do that. So now in this business for about 25 years, as a professional software developer, at least as far as you can say, if I can call myself that, I think I got my first something that looks like a computer when I was, I think, 11, still in the last final grade of elementary, elementary school. I got it from my grandmother, Commodore 64, programming on, uh, on I think it's called Commodore Basic. And this morning on a tweet, somebody said, like, what was the first thing you uh, that you got in touch with, which was from Microsoft, which actually was Microsoft Basic. And I taught myself programming on there. I even had something called, if I remember correctly, Simon's Basic. 
I don't know if there's any uh, anybody in the audience old enough to remember that. After that, an Amiga, Commodore Amiga, uh, started to program in C, then C++. Amigas and, were awesome. Uh, Amigas yeah. were awesome. I had a 500, my friend had a, a 1000, and a 2000. And I had that for years. My father still has the 1200 on the uh, the attic in, in my uh, parents' house. Twelve hundred. I had a five hundred as well. Twelve hundred indeed. On the on the twelve hundred, I actually taught myself SAS C plus plus. Just saying that jogged my memory. And but yeah, the last twenty five years, I've been a like a semi professional software developer. First couple of years still in C plus plus, but I think somewhere in two thousand, C sharp got introduced two thousand one, and since then I've been active development on on C sharp in the Netherlands, obviously doing various uh, jobs. The last 15 years, I mostly help companies adopt software development. And that's not just like coding and everything. It's also architecture, design principles, but also how you deal with your teams, how you organize it. Scrum, obviously, Kanban or various forms of that. Uh, So that's also why I have a blog called The Continuous Improver, because I have a pretty broad interest. I like it. a lot of interesting stuff. That's why I said uh, earlier when we were talking before the uh, recording, I do visit the US. I try to visit every year, go to QCon because it's a nice conference where you also hear about other stuff than just coding. You hear about the culture of development, how to get people to work together. But yeah, and uh, since I think 12, 13 years, I've been doing uh, open source development. Started as a just a small trial. And uh, yeah, I just happened to have a, an open source project that's reasonably popular these days. Never anticipated it would be like that, but yeah, we crossed 110 million downloads, which is crazy if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, my wife yeah, still tells me great. like, it is great. And my wife still tells me like, oh, if only you got like one cent per download mm. or something, just mm. one cent, you know, we would be rich financially, of course, yes. Yeah. yeah well, open source, especially ones that, that help out a lot of developers I know are well worth it to those developers. Right. And there's, and there are other benefits to open source than the money, although the money would be nice. <laughs> it is nice. And I, I, I see a small, like for the first 10 years, of course, nothing happens. You just pay for mm-hmm. DNS, uh, for DNS domain names and that kind of stuff. Right. But I noticed that over the years, I got like a little bit of traction, like JetBrains offering free licenses for their tools for open source developers, which I'm very happy with because I use uh, I love Rider, for example. And there's others like Semantic Merge was a tool that I used a lot to get free licenses. I did get some small amount of income through like ads on the uh, the landing page on the documentation sites, but that's just barely enough to cover the uh, the expenses. And it will never cover the, all the hours I spent in the evening on that. So th- th- that's a thing. But I have to admit, since we have GitHub sponsors, it has a bit has gone a bit better. I mean, still not a lot, but it at least is something. Gives you something in return. And I do share it with my uh, my partner in crime who was joined the project uh, something like three years ago. So it's nice. It's not going to make me rich. It's not going to replace my day job, which I, by the way, love way too much. But it's something, something in return. You can buy, I don't know, at some point I can buy a new monitor or something like that, which is well, extra memory. Or There you go. Get, go get yourself one of those, uh, what, Samsung 40-inch curved? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to do a bit better than uh, I need some more sponsors. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right, you said you've been in open source for 
for a long time at this point, right? How does that, or do you factor that into your consulting work, helping companies get into development and that whole process? I think it's, what's the expression? Like it cuts both ways or something. I think me doing open source helps me try new things. I mean, I don't really love spiking things, but I do uh, put a lot of effort in open source. In fact, Fluent Assertions actually started, I think, from a project we did like 15 years ago uh, for a client, and I was looking for a nicer way to express my unit tests, and that's how it evolved. I mean, we still had CodePlex, and maybe you don't remember that. But, I mean, I'm a strong proponent of, uh, proponent of open, using open source software. It is a bit of a misconception that it really is free. I mean, it's free, you get the software, but in the end, there's people behind that. And if those people stop working on that, you have to be prepared to take on that code and make it your own. That's one of the things I always look at. Like, how many people are behind that? What's the quality of that code base? Would I be able to maintain it myself if push comes to shove? That's also, what, by the way, what I do. I use Fluent Assertion also as like, as a, a textbook example of what I think a source code should look like. I try to make it really maintainable, self-documented. I use even the unit test of, of the library as a reference, like, hey, this is the way I think you should be doing it, in my personal opinion. And I also refer to that. I have done a couple of uh, a workshop days. I call them masterclasses on maintainable, uh, maintainable code. And there I actually use the source code of Fluent Assertions to demonstrate things. And the funny thing is, I did a couple of these workshops and every time I do the workshop and I demonstrate something using my own code, I realize like, hey, you know what? I can actually do this better. This is maybe not as clear as I thought it was. Maybe it was very clear six months ago, but I think I can improve it and I, I keep improving it. And that's, that's a nice cycle as well. In the same way that the learnings that I build during during project development, when I do actually projects for clients, I use my open source projects to also try to, I don't know, what's the word, like process what I've learned, process what I, what, I, what I experienced, and then use what I put on the open source world as a reference example of, you know, to, to capture those experiences. It's the same reason I do with blog posts. Blog posts are a way for me to, to funnel all the experiences, I create a comprehensive story from that, which, of course, some people read, a few, but it's also for myself as a memory, like to process all the experiences and make a yeah, good story out of it. We've actually talked about that with some other guests. They wrote blog posts, you know, and a lot of times these end up, can end up being for you, right? And then they search for something. And one of the f- first links was one of their old blog posts from 10 years ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> I had exactly like that. I was discussing something. I think it was about strategic architecture or something. Mm. And I was Googling for it. And then I found a blog post on my own blog. And I didn't even remember that I wrote it. When I was reading it, I felt like, I don't remember. I mean, I remember that I was at the conference because usually the conference is also a trigger for me to push out a couple of articles. Mm. And I don't even remember that I wrote, but it's, it's nice. It's also, yeah, indeed, it's a good way to capture some historical decisions. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So what's what's the best way to contribute to open source? Because I've had bad luck with it because there's been a few things that I've tried to submit PRs for to add features or fix things. And I don't know what it is, but they, they end up rejecting it saying, no, thanks. We don't want it to do that. So I spent all this yep. time trying to come up with a new feature, try to get it in there. And then they say, yeah, we're not going to do that. So what's the best way to help? Start an issue because... 
I, I actually, I recognize what you've experienced, but I also recognize what it is on the other side as the maintainers of a library. And indeed, if you have a brand new open source project or which is reasonably young, then people or then the developers or the maintainers are more inclined to accept improvements because it's still building up. But I've, I've experienced myself with Fluent Assertions. Now it's like we've been running it for like 12 years. With this huge code base, you start to really need, you need to think about how to add functionality in a consistent but also backwards compatible way and we get more and more requests exactly as you say sean people asking for something that on itself is not a bad idea but it may not fit the design principle or the design philosophy of of that library or it may be something that adds too much complexity that we're not willing to take it's a real project i mean adding new features there is also a trade-off. Like, do you really want to add that feature? Is it worth it? Because it's not just you get, it's not like as a maintainer, I think, oh, awesome, Sean. I love that PR. We get it for free. It means that I, as a maintainer, have to maintain all of that, have to understand what you've done. So we get a lot of that. But usually the best way is just start an issue uh, GitHub these days, there's even discussions. You can start a discussion on, uh, you know, I have this idea of this feature. Uh, do you think it makes sense? And that works, by the way, exactly in inter- internal companies as well. If you adopt inner sourcing, you have the same thing. You have the multiple repositories with owners, people that maintain that. And you do the same thing. You start a, a dialogue like, hey, what, what do you think about this? Would that fit? Does it fit your philosophy? Are you willing to, to maintain that? Because otherwise, why would you even start that? So I would do that. Create an issue or discussion, which you can do these days. Propose your topic, get some feedback, and if the people in the the maintainers tell you like, "Hey, that's a great idea, let's do that," then go ahead. You know, I, I, I even assign it to that person, so that other people that will come for the same way understand who's actually building it, especially if it's somebody outside the project. But it should be a dialogue. And in the case of Fluent Assertions, we also have a dedicated Slack account where you, where you can register. So there's a separate development channel where people can also ask questions and get, you know, get some feedback. We have pretty, even for pull requests, we have pretty extensive uh, guidelines, like uh, what kind of things we expect, what coding conventions, uh, how we do the, the testing part. Um, documentation is part of that. Took a while to get that whole organized, but now somebody can propose a PR that also includes documentation. So when as soon as it merged, also it updates the website because that goes with it, including release notes. So yeah, a discussion like a real project. Yeah, good suggestion. I'll try that next time. You've talked a little bit about fluid insertions. So for those that aren't familiar with it, uh, can you kind of give us the introduction and what it is, why somebody would want to use it? It's uh, Fluent Assertions is um, is a small library that literally is what it is. It's a set of Fluent Assertions, Fluent APIs, that help you make your unit tests more readable. Things like um, some object should be equivalent to another object graph, and it will do a deep comparison, and it will report you the differences if something is wrong. It's really not that special, actually. It's just because the, the reporting, so if a unit test fails, you get like clear uh, explanation what's wrong that should give you a better idea of because it started from the the premise of on my desire to create unit tests that are self-explanatory i think unit tests or automated tests in general first class citizens of the code base so quite often if i review a pull request i first go to the tests to see like what kind of behavior can i expect what kind of functional behavior that you can see that back in the naming of the unit test the structure uh, how intention revealing the unit tests are and fluent assertion is just a, an ingredient in that. Your assertion part 
is more descriptive instead of i don't know it's difficult to explain if you're listening but if you have like ms test you get something like assert is true and then two parameters and you never know which one is the actual expectation which one is the subject uh, with fluent assertion it should become something like expectation sorry uh, subject should be the the expectation and you can even put some some rationale behind it like because i was expecting something and if it fails you get all the information you want so it's nothing more than that just happens to be uh, download a lot i want to say that i actually disagree with you and it not being special because uh, obviously a lot of people use it i've used it before um now, I'll be honest, right? Don't do a lot of unit tests. Everywhere I've worked, it's it's been a second-class citizen, right? So you don't always get time to do them. But I used, in a previous job, I used XUnit and Mock and Fluid Insertions to do my unit tests. And Fluid Insertions definitely makes it more human-readable, right? You don't have to, to sit there and figure out exactly what's going on because it's it tells you. So I appreciate the work you've done on it. And I think it's a it's a great tool. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, for this I'm, use, I'm using that exact same setup on my current project. You know, XUnit, Mock, and Fluent Assertions. So nice. It definitely is very popular. Yep. It is. Yeah, it is. I don't understand how, why, or how how it started, but I think it dawned on me when I first like. I mean, I'm narcissistic enough, I guess, to have a Twitter feed listening for fluent assertions and terms for years. And I think I remember. I still remember the first time I saw somebody write a blog post about fluent assertion. I thought like that's probably something else, but it was really about the library. Like, cool. And that happens, of course, more and more. And then somebody created a pluralsight training. Like, why the heck would you create a pluralsight training for something simple as that? But yeah, I mean, I've also met people that applied for a job at a client even and that knew about the library and came to me to say hi or they, they recognized my name. It's humbling. It's also I'm also proud, obviously, but it's also humbling at the same time. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a fun exercise and I'm happy that it goes so well. Yeah. Cost a lot of time, obviously. When did it first start? I think I remember I did a presentation. I think it was 2008. So okay. that's, if I remember correctly, that's like 13 years ago. Right. I don't, it wasn't even really on, I think, yeah, no, it must be Codeplex because mm. you couldn't really contribute. You had to use patch files. I think <laughs> contributions really changed when I switched to GitHub. That right. was the big thing because yeah. then it became obvious for people to do that. Yeah. So have you had people reach out to you and, and say that Fluent Assertions has helped them to write more unit tests or helped them to make that part of their, their workflow? No, not really, actually. No. no. Well, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that has. So from your perspective, how do you factor in unit tests? Like, I mean, how do you make them a first-class citizen, right? Because I practice test-driven development. And, there you go. and <laughs> that doesn't mean much, but I've been doing this now for, I think, 15 years, not writing my tests first feels like driving without seatbelts. And I'm not dogmatic about it because in reality, you don't create your test. That's not the real first thing you do. I also have a, I did a couple of presentations about TDD and writing maintainable code. And one of the things I try to emphasize is it's not like what people write in the books. You're not literally going to open your source, your IDE and write a test. It usually starts with trying to design the responsibilities of the classes and the things you want to do. And that's that's already a bit of a creative process. Or maybe not necessarily creative, but it's a process that you have to go through a couple of times to figure out like what are the responsibilities. Because, because I really think hard about also the scope of my tests. 
I mean, a lot of people can be very dogmatic about it, like a class is the unit. I disagree with that. I really think about the unit. And I can only do that when I start designing, you know, sketching out the structure of my code base. So I literally will create some classes, try to figure out are the responsibilities correct, are the distributed correct. And then I start to write tests. And then from that point on, I, you know, I I probably have to refactor a little bit because I didn't completely design it for testability. But that's the start. Like I, I bootstrap it with some design choices. Then I switch into the more TDD kind of way. And then I'll continue from there. Like if I run into a bug, and I also expect that from the people I work with, the first thing as I do is create a unit test to reproduce that bug and make sure it fills for the right reason. And that's also the part. That's also why I think fluid assertion is nice, because if you do something like some action should throw a particular exception, I try to make an effort to also verify the parts of the exception that are relevant. I'm not going to literally put the exception message in there, because that tends to change over time. And that I have to change my test, but at least use some wildcard selection to figure out, okay, is this really the right exception that I'm expecting? And then when I've reproduced the bug, then I start fixing the bug. Of course, reality is not that black and white. So sometimes you do change some code before you write a test, but I also always switch back to this TDD mindset and and make sure the tests are still readable, self-explanatory, have the right level of assertion, are functionally described. So I don't want technical names, I want functional names uh, because I also look at it, and there's a blog post I wrote about that, if, if, if a unit test fails, I have a kind of, and if I ramble too much, you know, stop me at any point in time. Uh, but I, I first look at the, the title of the test because the title should give me an indication of what is supposed, what is this thing supposed to do functionally? And if it's a very technical name, usually it doesn't really help. But if it's a functional name, a bit of a more abstract name, then it gives me an indication, okay, this is what this test is supposed to do. Then I look at the implementation and hopefully the implementation is clean enough, it's refactored enough, I should be able to confirm like it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. And if it fails, that means then it must be the production code. But I've seen so many code bases where the unit test was wrong from the start. Somebody just didn't implement it correctly. And that's why I also really think about the test, the code in the test case itself. Like I have this, I don't know if I got it from somebody, I must have been because I'm not that smart to think the things over myself, but I have this principle, like if something is not important for the test, it's very important not to show it. It's like a lot of negatives in there. But the reverse also applies. If something is important for that test case, it's also very important to show. So I rely a lot on the test data builder patterns, object models, to show the parts that I care about for that test case. And because of that, I also very, let's say, cautious about applying dry, don't repeat yourself, on unit testing, because people have a tendency to introduce base classes and all kinds of complex logic to make that unit test simple to read. But what happens quite often, and it's always when people start to refactor and try to apply dry, that reusable code, and I'm trying to use my hands here, obviously it doesn't work when people are listening, but what happens a lot is that the generic code becomes too powerful, too smart, and that actually removes a lot of logic and a lot of important information from the test cases that you care about. Right. So I'm very cautious. I also apply the rule three. So if I see three unit tests doing kind of the same thing, and it's not important for those test cases to understand, to see that code, I try to refactor the way. But I do that very cautiously, much more cautiously than I would normally do with production code. And now I got yeah, lost I've with seen, the original question. Well, no, yeah. And I've seen cases of that where, right, you have set up and tear down stuff. Then when you set it up, 
one unit test manipulates some of the things that you set up and then another test goes to run expecting the original and it doesn't and then you have a failing test and you can't figure out why yeah right you can run into all kinds of issues if you're not careful there are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before then it's time to work smarter with raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Oh man, I remember those times when we switched code bases from Anastast, which mm. runs everything sequentially, to uh, XUnit, which runs things in yeah. parallel to a certain extent. Right. And, th and then things start, you know, you have a bunch of green tests and then suddenly some start to become red. They fail, like, what the, what the heck? Right. And you run them again, and then a few of them become green, and some just become red, and then you start to figure out, okay, let's try that. And when you run them individually, everything is fine. That's that's shared mutable state. That's trying to say it very nicely, but it's, it's biting you. That's oh, yeah. a common thing, especially if it's multi-threaded or people use global state. Like, I see that a lot with the code that relies on dependency injection, and they use the, uh, what was that thing? Uh, that singleton pattern, I forgot the name. I did. Uh, maybe you remember. There's a pattern name for that. I forgot the name. Like, like when they use a singleton to yeah. get access to the dependencies from inside the class instead of injecting them. There was a yeah, library, like Microsoft. It. There's a pattern name. There's, it's an anti-pattern, actually. Mm. Uh, maybe it pops up in my mind later on. I don't <laughs> so, so how long does it take to get used to doing TDD? Because I think when most people start doing unit tests, they go, wow, this just takes so much time. It's it's probably not getting a good return on, on how much time that I'm spending on this. And that's why I think a lot of people don't mess with unit tests. Because it's funny code, that you, you say that. The test, you get yeah. change the test, you got to change the code, all that kind of stuff. So after a while, does it actually end up being a net positive? Absolutely. And it's, it's funny that you say that because I don't meet a lot of people anymore that don't do unit testing. Like most of the companies that I deal with, they're very like advanced on that. What I do see. Is, I mean, unit testing is is basically yeah. You, I mean, look at it very simple. How do you make sure that the code does what it's supposed to do? That I mean, you don't really know that until you test it. And of course, you have two choices then: do it manually, or maybe throw it over the wall and hope somebody else will do it, which is not a really nice way. But you either have to do it manually, have somebody else do it for you, or have it done automatically. And if you don't do it automatically, you end up with bugs and other issues that are very. I mean, if I change a bug. If I fix a bug, how do I know I've actually fixed that? I can test that. But how do I know that not something else was broken? I mean, code can be complicated. There's a lot of dependencies in code, and there's a lot of coupling that just you know sneaks in over time. There's plenty of code bases where when you fix something on one side of the code base, something else breaks. And if you don't have the safety net that gives you the confidence and removes the fear of change, because that's one of the reasons uh, why people uh, love doing t unit testing, it removes the fear of change. And what's the worst thing a software developer can do is being afraid to change it, afraid to not refactor it anymore. That's ultimately going to end up in, I don't know, mayhem or a mess, a big ball of mud. So it's just a safety net. 
What's problematic is that a lot of people that practice TDD start shooting themselves in the foot. That's also literally the title of a presentation I've been doing. Is because they apply it incorrectly, too dogmatically. You know, this whole concept of a unit test per class, that, that's really a bad pattern. I mean, I'm not saying it's always wrong. What I'm saying is it's quite often the wrong scope because if you test too small, whenever you start to refactor or change responsibilities or discover that one class has uh, has too many responsibilities, you want to break it down or you want to apply a pattern, you want to refactor towards design patterns. That's also what, what you're supposed to do with design patterns. You have to rewrite your tests and that defies the purpose. And that's when people say, TDD is bad. I mean, that's also, I, I saw a presentation on YouTube, like uh, the dark side of TDD or why TDD breaks your productivity, that kind of stuff. Those are people that are usually in the um, thrall of the disillusionment, if you know the Gardner hype cycle. So I think I said, when we started talking about testing, the first thing I do is think about what is the scope of the testing? What are the boundaries? What are the classes that solve something together? And a really nice example I always use is, is fluent assertions. There's a method, an API, a fluent assertion. It's called B equivalent to. And it's an API that allows you to compare two object graphs. Because, yeah, it, it, you can basically say I have two object graphs and I want to be able to compare them. It can be a DTO that's being compared to an anonymous object with certain properties. That is a very powerful API, but also very complex because it needs to be able to understand object graphs, needs to understand tuples, dictionaries, collections. It needs to understand strings, how to compare date times, anonymous types, records. You can already imagine that something that needs to understand so many different types and have different algorithms for that, if you're in the design patterns world, you probably think, yeah, it's probably using some kind of strategy pattern. And it does. However, 10 years ago, when I started creating this API, it was very simple. It was just a simple method with a simple body. But over the years, I refactored it into a lot of chunks and bits and pieces that are responsible for different parts of the process. However, I'm not testing all these individual strategy classes. I'm testing the method, the thing that's observable. So even though there's like 20, 30 different classes behind that, I'm still testing that as a single scope. And again, I'm using my hands to draw a boundary, which you can't see. But the point is that that boundary, the scope evolved naturally. But some people would say, yeah, but that's a separate class. You need to test it separately. So if I would have done that, I would have rewrite all my tests. The fact that I have an enormous suite of unit tests that cover this B equivalent method as if it's being used by you as a consumer of the library and I'm not testing the internal internals allows me to refactor the implementation any which way I want because I have my safety net and I don't have to rewrite my tests. If you also have to rewrite your tests, then you have to rewrite your safety net and then you don't essentially have no safety net, which is not what you want. So I'm very consciously about thinking about what's my boundary. What belongs, what's part of that? And that's also affects the way I structure my code. So, I mean, a lot of people say test-driven development is more like a design thing than a testing thing. It's just a name was a bit uh, chosen in a, like in a crappy way. And I fully agree because practicing TD forced me to think about this boundary and also caused me to, to structure my code in a certain way. I use functional folders very much. If you go into the Fluent Assertion code base, you'll find an equivalency folder, which contains all the logic for verifying equivalencies. It's functionally oriented. And that becomes almost like a natural boundary instead of having like, that's also why I don't like layered architecture so much because it's so technically origin. You have the, the surface layer, the domain layer, the data layer, 
I like to think more in vertical slices and use those as boundaries. It doesn't mean that I have to that I don't test smaller. It's just that I have a kind of a default, like the whole module is a boundary. But if there's too many permutations, of course I test smaller. And maybe I even some specific test cases that really, you know, verify the interaction with other parts of the system because there's some performance consideration. You you just do not want to be dogmatic about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually wrote a unit test in my past sprint, which I was very proud of. Yeah, yeah, I actually got one in. <laughs> well done. But it's on a code base that I did not write. And it has several anti patterns and some issues in the way it was written in the first place. And the code that I needed to test was a private method on this much larger class. And you basically had to go through six or seven steps before this to even get to it. But it could stand alone. So I had to make the decision, do I make this public and call it from the unit test? Or do I leave it private and have to build however many unit tests or not test it at all? And I chose to change it so that it was public so that I could properly test it. But I don't expect anything else to call it directly. Although if they did, there wouldn't be any negative repercussions. You just wouldn't have the whole function, right? It wouldn't do everything it's intended to do. Um, what do you think about that? It's a good question because this is where the reality and the theory uh, start to diverge. Obviously, I do not want to make anything. No, I don't want to change my code to make it testable. So indeed, I don't want to make things public just so my test can access it. Because usually it means that your testing probably too technical. Your test is too small. The scope is too small. However, you had a point there. You're looking at an existing code base. And then you didn't design it for testability. That's also why it's so hard to do test last because it's very difficult to test something that wasn't designed for that. I mean, if you're very experienced, you may be able to design your code in such a way because you have already this the way of thinking to design things in a componentized way or to create abstractions. But if you have an existing code base, you can't. And then the best thing or the only thing you can do if you want to start approaching that is create a bunch of ugly tests which do some really nasty things. But it's a starting point. I think Michael Fadders, he has a, he wrote a book. It's called, uh, what's the name again? Working Effectively with Legacy Code or something like that. And one of the things he explains is, and he calls it characteristics test. So if you have an existing code base that wasn't designed for testability, you just create those ugly, nasty tests that do all kinds of dirty stuff because you're building a temporary safety net for yourself. And they're, they're called characteristics tests because usually what you do, you just observe the behavior of the existing code, you know, see what it does, create tests that simulate, that mimic that behavior. So you're literally just repeating your test, the current behavior. And then you, if you have sufficient coverage, uh, you have your safety net that allows you then to start breaking things apart, create seams in your architecture break classes in smaller pieces, maybe introduce interface or abstractions, delegates in .NET, whatever you want to use, to figure out what are the right boundaries that I want testing. And again, I'm using my hand, so you don't see that, but I'm drawing boundaries, fences, stuff that, like that. But you have the safety net. And then, you know, at some point, when you've sufficiently refactored your code base to make it properly testable, and you can actually create unit tests that you like, you know, that that makes sense, that are uh, self-describing and can be treated as first-class citizens, then you can get rid of those characteristics tests. Perfectly okay, because that's how the world works. Not everybody has the luxury of working greenfield projects only. In fact, I love greenfield projects, but I actually love brownfield even more, 
because it, it allows me to apply all that experience that I built over the years of how you can refactor code bases, remove that code. I love that. When I use my IDE writer or before I use Visual Studio with Sharper, I love it when my IDE suddenly tells me the code becomes gray, like literally gray in my IDE. I know I can do Alt-Enter and it's gone. I love deleting code because that's something I don't have to maintain anymore. There are two different challenges, right? Greenfield and Brownfield, and, and they, they scratch different niches, <laughs> so to speak. True. Very yeah. true. So do you think it's best for developers to be writing the tests or separate testers for doing that? I think I know the answer, but I just wanted to ask your opinion. No, I, I don't believe in testers. I believe, I mean, if you do TDD, then there's no discussion, of course. Testers should be writing that. Obviously, because they should be part, I said, first-class citizens. So they should be part of your pull request, obviously. I don't accept a pull request without some test because it means you, I can even see, by the way, when people don't practice TDD. You can see it even sometimes from the the structure of the test, the way things are done. I was, I think, I think I was the one that my current client that was trying to push everyone to drop the term tester. You may do some manual testing, but in the real, what I really believe is manual testing should be unstructured testing. So where you use the specific skill set that a quality engineer has, you know, the will to break your system, the will to think out of the box and really find those edge cases, that's probably the only manual testing you should be doing with that pe- with those type of people because they have those skill sets. Everything else should be automated. And a quality engineer is really crucial in your development process because he or she should be actually part of the whole grooming process, ask difficult questions like, okay, but how are we going to make this testable? Are we going to be able to deploy this somewhere, run an end-to-end test or something? What's the scope of the test that we need? Maybe we need multiple levels, unit testing, API level testing, uh, maybe some night watch or you know, JavaScript-based testing plus some unstructured testing. But in reality, it is not a testing job. It's a software engineering job, if that answers your question a little bit. So I've got another question for you. What do you think about test metrics and code coverage and all that (laughs) stuff that shows you how well you're testing? It's a really good question because I had a big debate about it. So I like to strive for 90% coverage, but, and that's the dangerous part, and a lot of people don't get it. It is not a goal on itself. For me, it's more like it's a gouge. It gives me an indication of how well has it been designed. And if you practice TDD, reaching 90% is trivial. I mean, never try to go for 100% because that's always part of the code base that is very difficult to test in an automated way. I think Jeremy D. Miller, which is, uh, has been pretty famous in the .NET community, uh, especially in the alt.net uh, timeframes, I think he wrote a blog, couple of blog posts about that at that time, 2007, 2008, saying isolate the ugly stuff. And there's always some ugly stuff that you can't really cover. And the reality is, it's not just unit testing you do. You have unit testing, you have module testing, you have integrations test. Maybe you even touch the database, even though it's ugly. You may still want to do that. You may have some end-to-end API test uh, with Owen and now with ASP.NET Core. It's pretty easy to build an entire HTTP pipeline and run your entire application in unit test and send HTTP requests and verify that the uh, e-tags and all the return codes make sense. But of course, you also have automated UI tests or whatever JavaScript framework is hip these days. They also contribute to the testing, but they might not be as measurable. And you do, you do Java just adjustment testing, obviously, if you do React or something like that. They all are complementary. That's some people actually think is one or the other. No, they're complementary, which means that the tooling just doesn't allow you to give that 90% because, yeah, you also rely on other types of testing. But it's an indication. If a code base has an average code coverage of 30%, that's not a good sign. 60, 
not that good of a sign. Maybe it means they didn't start with TDD, but they're starting to practice now. As long as, as it goes up with every pull request, I'm happy. Boy Scout rule. Leave the campground, clean it, and you got there. That's that's my right. motto almost. That's good enough. Yeah, cool. So what's coming next for fluent insertions? What, what kind of things are going to be? Not much, actually. We just finished one and a half year of development and the ship to version six, which was a big release. Lots of breaking changes, obviously, cleaning up a lot of uh, old stuff, bad decisions, uh, cleaning that code. There is about 80 feature requests. So I have plenty of uh, work to do together with my uh, partner in crime, Jonas in Europe. So yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really have a plan now. We're, we have a major release and now it's just adding features, whatever comes in and that's it. No, really no, no. Are there any methods or, or features that, that aren't that popular, but you think you know pe- more people should be using them? Honestly, everybody seems to be using B equivalent to and using the right exceptions. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know, actually. I mean, yeah, probably if I if I train, let's look at an existing code base, I can find some improvements like, hey, you can do this smarter. I think if I had to name one is the fact that people didn't know that you can actually compare an object graph against anonymous type, which I use a lot. Because quite often your unit test, you only want to test certain parts of your DTO. And with anonymous type, you can say something should be equivalent to anonymous type. And then you specify just two properties, which means fluent assertion will know, okay, you care only about those two properties. If that other object, the subject on the test has other properties, you make it very explicit you don't care about. That's something that everybody understands. And I think record support is something that was added in version 6, which was a pretty, um, let's say, uh, controversial t- uh, topic, how we implemented that. But yeah, anonymous types is very powerful. And a lot of people don't know that. I, I didn't realize you could do that until you brought it up in ah. this podcast. So. It is extensively documented, but yeah, who reads the documentation, of course. <laughs> That's the thing, yeah. All right, great. I think we're just about out of time, so I'm going to move us into picks. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, rocky road or whatever right instead what we're looking for is more along the lines of yeah i have the situation how do i handle it i'm trying to figure this thing out how do i figure it out i'm trying to stay current how do i stay current and if you have any of those kinds of questions i'll bring you on the call we'll ask some deeper questions we'll make sure we get you a solid answer and i'm really looking forward to helping some people out there will be no sales no selling no nothing on these calls it is literally just 10 minutes of training and then q a so you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up caleb you want to go first what's your pick sure i can go 
something that we got, I got an email or deal alert or something. HBO was doing half off for like six months. So I was like, sure, I'll try that. So we've watched a few movies, which is nice that, you know, you have movies out in theaters that are on HBO. And my wife and I really, we enjoyed Wonder Woman 1984. So I think that's going to be, be my pick. Yeah, Wonder Woman 1984 and HBO is trying to get more people to use their service. So they're cutting their prices in half. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My pick this week is going to be Halloween. Halloween is probably my favorite mm-hmm holiday because it's it's so interactive you know with trick-or-treats and the costumes and the haunted houses and things like that so i love you know doing things for halloween i didn't do anything last year because of covid and i don't know if i'll do much this year i usually go out and help some friends set up a haunted house and then participate in and things like that so i like to do that so my pick is halloween and a website where you can actually get some pretty cool like costumes and and makeup and things like that they have like you know, foam prosthetics and things like that. Right. So you can get some really cool looking uh, uh, costumes and makeup and things like that. It's it's called uh, Mostly Dead. So Mostly Dead. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to check out some cool Halloween makeup and things like that that you can do for yourself, uh, check out Mostly Dead. You know, my, my son associates, my six-year-old associates Halloween with fall. Not Thanksgiving or not the leaves turning. It's not Halloween. Not the candies. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. The, the funny thing is, it's not really a thing in the Netherlands. Mm. I mean, it is. I mean, we do it a little bit, like kids do re- know what it is, and uh, it's not really big. I'd never realized how big it is when I, until I first visited Los Angeles. I was visiting, I think, PDC somewhere in yeah. 2000, I think 2008 or 2009, and I was in a big hotel, mm-hmm. and I was like, what the hell is happening here? Why is everybody <laughs> so, I was like, wow, this is really like you see in Hollywood movies. I never forget about that. But What's I guess pick, I also yeah. have to pick, sorry, yeah. 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 I was, Caleb mentioned at the beginning, I thought like, oh, I, I didn't think about that. But you, you jogged my memory. Actually, if I had to name two things which I really enjoyed these days, it's the new Marvel movie called uh, Shang-Chi, and the yeah. uh, Secret of the Ten Rings, yeah. I think it's a bit underrated. It was actually a lot of fun, much more fun than I expected. And also because my kid is, uh, then he's, he's actually watching some of the Marvel movies and he found connections to it. I have a nine-year-old and we visited yeah. in the cinema. Cinemas are open up here in the Netherlands. Cool. And another, if I may, a second one is yeah. I'm playing a game called Death Stranding. It's ah, not yes. entirely new. But I have a PC and only arrived on the PC last year. Yeah. It's a beautiful a game. It's uh, completely different than everything else that I've played. It's not a real first-person shooter. It has Norman Reedus from The Walking Dead as the main player. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really bought into it like the first six or seven hours. But at some point, it got to me. I've been playing it now for 85 hours. And it's beautiful. It's, it's very a unique. masterpiece. Yeah, it's yeah. a masterpiece. It's not for everybody, but the story unfolds, the walking around the mountains with your packages on your back, ultimately building roads and buying a truck or getting a truck. It's it's incredible. It's really incredible. So yeah, those would be my picks. Okay, good deal. All right. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, Dennis, and reach out, uh, what's the best way? Twitter, definitely. D. Duman. I guess they will be added to the show notes or my email address. My name is pretty unique, dennis.duman at outlook.com. But just if you look for my name, you'll find me. It's not a lot. In the Netherlands, there's only two people that have my name. So the other (laughs) one is not really uh, on the internet. All right, great. And if our listeners want to get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. We'd like to get your feedback. Let us know how we're doing, what we can do better, what we can cover. Reach out to me. I'm at .net superhero on Twitter. Dun, 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 dun. And Caleb Wells (laughs) is. 
at Caleb, Caleb Wells Coach. Coach. Yes. Yep. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank at, you. Uh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dennis. Great yep. show. Glad to have awesome. you. Awesome. Thank you, man. Right. Yeah. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.